Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is not a 10-minute mystery edition. This is Don Millette, Part 2. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Tonight, our conclusion to the story of Donald Millette, a 34-year-old publisher of the one-time Canton Daily News who rode into town in 1924, took on the city's crime bosses and corrupt police force, and was gunned down in his driveway one sultry summer evening in 1926. When we left you at the end of Part 1, we learned that the Canton police chief, Ed Langle, a frequent target of Millette's editorials, had announced that after a month of investigation, his department had exhausted all leads in the murder of Millette and was pretty much not going to investigate any further. That meant if the Millette family was going to get justice, it would have to come through less traditional means. And so we begin part two of the assassination of Donald Millette. There was no shortage of people willing to roll up their sleeves in an effort to find Millette's killers, a reward that amounted to the equivalent of a quarter of a million dollars by today's measure brought in a ton of private detectives. The field of journalism sent in reporters to lend a hand. They had a martyr to defend, after all. The Cleveland Plain Dealer sent a reporter to Canton full-time for half a year. That reporter, William Tugman, started knocking on all the doors in the Millette neighborhood and learned that of 20 residents who were home the night of the shooting, many of whom had heard or seen something, only one had been interviewed by police. Meanwhile, Scripps Howard, which owned the Akron Press, where Millette briefly worked as an ad executive before making the move to Canton, made Millette's murder a priority. They hired Ora Slater, an ace investigator that was almost a household name in Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky for solving some very high-profile crimes. The Akron Press had Ora Slater in Canton just 36 hours after Millette's murder. The Millettes were also lucky to have an honest and determined Stark County prosecutor in Charles McClintock. McClintock knew Ora Slater's reputation. He also knew it was going to be useless to expect any help from the Canton police. And so the county piggybacked on the Akron Press's idea. County taxpayers picked up the bill for Slater, and McClintock made him his chief investigator. Before the month was out, Ora Slater was well on his way to solving the crime. The first break came in the persons of Bill and Eva Bitzler, who told Slater that they were shopping downtown on July the 11th when they ran into an old friend that Bill knew from back in Pennsylvania. That man was Patrick McDermott. Bill and Pat had traveled together in 1920 looking for work, And while Bill Bitzler admitted to a petty crimes record himself, Pat McDermott was a felon. As they caught up that day, McDermott bragged that he was in town working for what he called some high muckety mucks. 
The next day, he took Bill Bitzler to his boarding house, where he showed him his big new revolver. The evening Millette was killed, Bill and McDermott had bought some wine, but McDermott passed on it, saying he had a big job that night. Then he went on to complain how he had a rich friend in Maslin and that the Daily News was maligning him. The friend McDermott was talking about was Ben Redner, the bootleg boss that Millette had fingered as the killer of that whistleblower. Before Bill and McDermott parted that evening, McDermott told him he might have to leave town suddenly, but if he did, he'd get in touch later. In the morning, Bill Bitzler learned of Millette's murder and knew his buddy was likely involved. He was really fearful that McDermott might become a suspect, and if he did, that people would remember how Bill had been in his company for days leading up to the killing. Bill decided he'd better tell somebody. That somebody was Ora Slater. Slater immediately paid a visit to McDermott's room at the boarding house. It was empty. Meanwhile, ballistics experts had recovered enough slugs around the Millette home to conclude there were probably at least two gunmen that night. Even if McDermott was his man, Slater suspected he wasn't his only man. At the end of July, Major Swartz once again tried firing his police chief. This time, it stuck, with a civil service panel upholding the dismissal. A new acting chief was put in place, and Ora Slater was given full access to the Canton police records and resources. Just days after Bill Blitzer came forward with McDermott's name, Slater got another break. This one from a man named Steve Kuschok. Steve was staying in Cleveland when he heard about Millette's murder and came forward to share his own story about Patrick McDermott. Kuschok said he and McDermott grew up in the same hometown in Pennsylvania, which is why Kuschok recognized him when he spotted him in Cleveland in early July. At that time, McDermott mentioned he had learned of a good job in Canton, and talked Kuschok into going with him. They bought train tickets to Maslin. McDermott told Steve, This here Rudner guy wants us to do a job. We're going to go out and slug a guy. After a little digging around, Ora Slater figured out why Pat McDermott might have known Bed Rudner. They had both served in the federal penitentiary in Atlanta at the same time. Anyway, this Steve said some guy named Smitty picked them up in front of Rudner's hardware store and drove them to Canton. They cased a home on Broad Avenue, said to be where the victim was living. But Steve said it all freaked him out. He told McDermott he was only into honest work now. And the next day, Steve slipped out of town and returned to Cleveland. So Slater now had three suspects. Pat McDermott, the reputed gun for hire, Ben Rudner, who might have done the hiring, and this guy named Smitty. So where was McDermott? Interesting story there. McDermott was no drifter. He was the son of a coal mining operator and a very prominent family in his Pennsylvania town. 
Concerned with the family's reputation, McDermott's brothers agreed to meet with Slater and told the investigator that if they could be convinced that Pat was involved and that Pat would get a square deal, they would turn him in if they ever learned where he was. So Ora Slater brought in witnesses before the family to tell their story. It took weeks for the family to accept what seemed obvious, but one day that October, McDermott's brothers called Slater and urged him to come to Twin Rocks, Pennsylvania with the prosecutor and no one else. This was really rather risky business. Slater and Prosecutor McClintock weren't cops. They took along a gun for some protection, but they really had no protection, nor did they even have arrest powers in another jurisdiction. But they went, and once there, the brothers revealed Pat was hiding in that very town, and they had known all along. Only now were they willing to help trap him, saying they just couldn't get Pat to listen to reason. And once Slater and McClintock again promised he would be treated fairly, the brothers tricked Pat into walking into Ora Slater's hotel room. Pat was angry at the betrayal of his brothers and tried to get out of the room, but his brothers blocked his escape and wouldn't move until Pat agreed to go peacefully. Then Slater and McClintock took him back to Canton. Still, he refused to talk unless the murder charge against him was dropped. The prosecutor said no way. For all, all they knew, he was the guy who did the actual shooting of Millett. So McDermott kept his silence until his trial. Finally, Slater got his third man, a 32-year-old Canton native named Louis Mazur. Remember the story about the Canton cop who was reassigned after arresting a bootlegger who had paid for protection? This Mazer was that man's boss. Phone records and witnesses had placed Mazer in the company of both Rudner and McDermott during events that led up to the murder. A grand jury indicted all three. Pat McDermott went on trial first. He took the stand at his own defense and insisted it was Steve Koschalk who wanted to beat up Millette for a mysterious fellow named Smitty. And it was McDermott who told Koschalk he was crazy and he wouldn't become involved in such a thing. He said on the night of the murder, he went to a movie and then to bed. The jury was unimpressed. They took less than an hour to find McDermott guilty but requested mercy, and McDermott was sentenced to life in prison. A couple of months later, it was Ben Rudner's turn. He was a big player in Canton's underworld, and the trial had the extra exciting element of informants warning that a gang from Toledo was headed to Canton to either free Rudner or kill him if he was convicted. Rudner took the stand, argued he was a scapegoat and had nothing to do with the conspiracy. The jury deliberated that afternoon and agreed he wasn't guilty of first-degree murder. But they did find him guilty of second-degree murder. Rudner thought that was good news. It meant he would have a chance at parole. He didn't know it then, but parole would never be granted, and he would die in prison. The third trial 
was supposed to be for Louis Mazur. But by now, so much evidence and witness testimony had been presented, Mazur decided he better talk. And this was his version of what happened. According to Mazur, the plot was hatched when Canton Detective Floyd Streitenberger approached him during Chief Langle's first civil service hearing in 1926. Detective Streitenberger suggested Millette needed a good beating. Later, Louis Mazur found the guy who could do it. Mazur had grown up with Ben Rudner, and the day Pat McDermott came to town looking for Rudner, Mazur was there. Mazur called Streitenberger and said he found the right guy. Streitenberger provided Millette's address. Then later, after McDermott cased the address and suspected the Mellets didn't live there anymore, Streitenberger got the new address that had been given to the police and written down at headquarters. And seemingly, the request had gone from a good beating to something more severe. Streitenberger told Mazur to have his guy croak him. They worked out plans that called for Streitenberger and his wife to be waiting with a getaway car nearby. And after McDermott did the deed, he would go to the appointed location and Streitenberger would drive him away. Mazur said the night of the murder, he dropped McDermott off in Millette's neighborhood, then went to a pool room to wait. But Millette wasn't home, and after a couple of hours of waiting in those weeds, McDermott called Mazur at the pool room and asked to be picked up. Instead, Mazur went to Detective Streitenberger's house to find out what to do, and both men drove out to see McDermott and encourage him to be patient. So McDermott went back to his post in the weeds of the vacant lot, sat on some boards, and waited. Mazur and Streitenberger cruised the area, waiting for the deed to be done. And sometime after midnight, when they heard sirens headed toward them, they assumed it was over. They drove around looking for McDermott, spotted him walking on a sidewalk, and picked him up. Streitenberger asked for the gun McDermott had used in the slaying, but McDermott said he left it behind in the street. Actually, a common move for hitmen who don't want to get caught in possession of a murder weapon. But Streitenberger didn't like that idea. So they actually went back to the Millette house, followed most of the way by a police motorcycle headed to the crime scene. And while people were busy about the house, they pulled up and snatched the gun from the street. Mazur said he later threw it in Myers Lake. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, 
a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Well, this revelation now meant a fourth conspirator was involved. This Floyd Streitenberger, who was no longer a detective because the new police chief had fired him back when he took over and cleaned house. Streitenberger was arrested and charged on March the 4th, 1927. His trial began two months later. Streitenberger took the stand and insisted he was being framed. And he was so confident that the jury would take his word over that of a bootlegger that he couldn't hide his complete and utter shock when the jury came back with a guilty verdict. For the third time, the jury recommended mercy and a conspirator was given life with no parole. In this case, however, the judge added a bonus. Each anniversary of Don Millette's murder, Streitenberger would spend the day in solitary confinement. Only after Streitenberger was sentenced did the justice system finish with Mazur. He hadn't asked for a deal, but he got one anyway. Five to twenty years for manslaughter. Now, I told you at the beginning of our story, there were five men taken to trial. And the wheels of justice for the fifth only started to turn after Streitenberger's conviction. It was three days after that trial ended when Streitenberger asked to sit down with Prosecutor McClintock and the private gumshoe Ora Slater. And he said, yeah, okay. He had made arrangements, cut. He had made arrangements with McDermott to frighten Millette, but he had never intended for the publisher to be killed. And then he named another conspirator, none other than the former police chief, Ed Langle. Streitenberger said the chief had promised to take care of him and his family if anything should happen, but Langle had not fulfilled his part of the bargain. And now it was time Langle was recognized for his role in the affair. Streitenberger, however, added the caveat that, just like him, Langle had expected Millette to get a beating, not be shot. On June the 9th, Langle was indicted for murder, and his trial began a month later. There were some obvious problems. Former Detective Streitenberger seemed a little off his rocker. His testimony didn't always make sense, and investigators began to suspect he might have mental health issues. And Langle's defense even succeeded in getting Ohio Penitentiary Warden P.E. Thomas into placing a hidden recording device into Streitenberger's cell, which picked up a conversation that sounded like he thought Langle didn't know about the hit for hire. For Langle's part, the former chief took the stand and denied everything. But court watchers thought it telling that while Langle had made himself available to testify in favor of every conspirator, neither Mazur nor Rudner testified in his defense. The jury found Langle guilty of murder in the first degree. And frankly, 
Not only was Langle stunned, the entire courtroom seemed to be shocked. His conviction bothered some people who hadn't been bothered by the other four convictions. Langle was sentenced to life, but he wouldn't even serve a year. An appeals court ruled that the trial judge had erred in several ways, perhaps most importantly, by instructing the jury on how to interpret conspiracy. Could the definition of conspirator really include someone who might have known vaguely of a plan, but took no action to participate in it or stop it? A new trial was ordered, but this time Streitenberger made it clear he would not testify. And the prosecutor knew if he faced a mentally unstable Streitenberger, who was also now hostile, his case wouldn't fare well. Given the lack of evidence and the witnesses that remained, the judge acquitted Engel without a trial. Oh, but there's more. Because Patrick McDermott would have the last word. After he saw Langle went on a pill, he decided maybe he should break his public silence. Who knows, maybe coming clean would win points with the parole board. And so he granted an interview with a reporter at the Youngstown Vindicator. This is McDermott's version, and it is very, very different in some ways than the story that had been told by Louis Mazur. McDermott said he did meet Rudner in that Atlanta prison where the rich Rudner had bought himself a nice cell in what they called Millionaire's Row, and McDermott had talked himself into becoming the barber of those well-heeled convicts. And in the summer of 1926, while he was living in Cleveland, he did hear rumors of someone in Canton looking for tough guys to beat someone up. Since he knew Rudner was in Massillon, he thought maybe Rudner would know who he should talk to about that job. After McDermott ran into his old hometown pal, Steve Koschok, he suggested they go check out the job. McDermott said when he showed up at Rudner's hardware store, it took a few minutes for Rudner to even recognize who he was. But once he did, Rudner introduced McDermott to Louis Mazur, who offered him $300 to beat up the Daily News publisher, and then drove him to Millette's house to check out the location. McDermott agreed to the job and said he was the one who actually called the Millette home two days in a row with those anonymous warnings, though he'd never explained to the reporter, cut. Though he didn't explain to the reporter interviewing him why he did that. Mazur then introduced McDermott to Detective Streitenberger, who provided first the old address and then the Millette's new correct address. The night of the murder didn't go down at all the way Mazur told it, McDermott said. Yes, McDermott was dropped off in the Millette neighborhood alone, and he grew tired of waiting and called Mazur at the pool hall. But here's what happened next, he said. Streitenberger drove up with Mazur. McDermott jumped in the car, and the three of them drove around while Streitenberger convinced him to be patient and get the job done. They drove around the Millette home several times, and finally, when they saw their victim had returned, they pulled up to the curb down the street 
and all three of them walked to the vacant field. At this point, McDermott said he had no gun. Mazer had a gun and tried to give it to him, but he refused to take it. Streitenberger told Mazer, just keep the gun. And then he produced his own revolver. McDermott said they didn't have to wait long. After Millette exited the house and headed for his car, Mazer and Streitenberger opened fire. Afterward, the three men split up and raced separately to their parked car. It was Mazer who left his gun at the crime scene, McDermott said, causing them to return to the road in front of the Millette's increasingly busy house to lift it from the street. McDermott said the next morning he paid Ben Rudner a visit. Rudner asked if he was involved in that shooting. McDermott said, yeah, he was there. And Rudner assisted him in leaving town. According to McDermott, neither Rudner nor the former police chief Langle, to his knowledge, knew anything about the crime. Investigators expected both Mazur's and McDermott's versions were twisted in ways to benefit themselves. But an element of McDermott's story had a ring of truth to it. After all, they were sure bullets were fired from two different guns, and McDermott's was the version that explained that. It took about two years to finish up all the legal battles over the Millette murder. The surviving Millette family returned to Indiana. The Canton Daily News didn't make it. The year after Millette's death, the paper got that Pulitzer Prize for its fight against the corruption, an award that cited Millette's personal sacrifice. But circulation plummeted, and only months after winning the Pulitzer Prize, the paper was bought out by the repository. There was a brief time when folks in town might have been curious about the Millette name. In 1965, Canton's first destination shopping center was named Millette Mall in honor of the gang-busting publisher. It featured the popular Millette Cinemas. Two decades later, the Millette name was removed and it was rebranded Canton Center. And a decade after that, more modern malls nearby lured away shoppers and turned even that complex into a ghost town. Sadly, today, you'd probably be hard-pressed to find anyone in Canton who could tell you who Don Millette was. That's it for Don Millette Part 2. For photos, news clippings, and more, check out our website, ohiomysteries.com. We'll see you here next Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio Mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. 
We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon.